Welcome to a special episode of This Week in the CLE, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. Normally, this is a discussion about the news of the day, but we're doing special episodes, interviews with each of the candidates for the Cleveland mayor's job. Today, we have Kevin Kelly. Chief political writer Seth Richardson here is here to question Kevin and walk him through his policies and what he would do if he's mayor. So I'm going to get out of the way, turn it over to Seth and Kevin. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Chris. And thank you, Kevin, for joining us. We really appreciate it. Um, thank you, go ahead. All right, let's go ahead and get started. Uh, so the city is currently seeing a surge in gun violence and other violent crimes. What policies will you enact to help curtail the spike in violence we've seen over the past year? Thank you. Indeed, crime is at, at, at historic levels. It is, it, this is a, where 2020 we thought was going to be, um, whether it's COVID related or not, we thought that was the year where it had, it had peaked. But what we're finding is that year to date, um, August 2nd, 2021, year to date, we're higher in violent crimes than we were in 2020. So we've got a problem that we need to deal with immediately on day one. I have a, a three-pronged approach, uh, approach as three main pillars in terms of what are we going to do to, uh, to deal with this, this epidemic of violence. And it starts with supporting the police and getting them the tools and the training that they need to do the very hard job that, that we are asking of them. We cannot think that we're going to be able to attack this surge in violent crime if we are as understaffed as we are right now. From what council budgeted, there's over 100 openings for uniformed personnel in the division of police. And that what it, there are openings in all of the specialty units, the, the um, sex crimes, domestic violence, homicide. And if we don't solve these, these crimes, the people that did them are going to continue to commit more crimes. Just last week, it was actually the week before, I was at a memorial for a gentleman named um, Wilbert McCormick, who is a former firefighter of the city of Cleveland, who is just taking a walk with his wife, and he was hit by a stray bullet. So what could possibly make this family's pain any worse? The fact that they felt they got kind of a lackluster follow-through, the fact that they, they didn't have the detective that was calling them back frequently, they felt like this wasn't a priority. We need to make sure that each of these crimes is a priority, and we are putting all of our resources towards solving them, but you can't do it without people. You can't do it without the, the men and women uh, to staff the division of police. And it gets to the zone card level as well. We're asking our zone card officers to respond to 20 to 30 calls for service per shift. Now, I'm a former social worker, and I know that when you are interacting, when you're dealing with people in crisis, it's exhausting. It is, it is very difficult mentally. You're dealing with people when they're at their lowest. So you really have to make sure that, that they are, we're dealing with the wellness of the officers, that we are, we are tending to those that are doing this hard job. So we need to make sure we've got the staff, the training, the equipment to support the people that are the men and women of the Division of Police that are doing this very difficult job. Secondly, the second pillar, so the main pillar, that's pillar one, which is make sure that we are training, equipping, giving the tools, of, giving the police the tools they need to succeed. The second is making community policing real. Now, if you asked, a, you know, 10 different people, you get 10 different definitions of what community policing is. 
this is what it means to me, and this is what it's going to mean in the Kelly administration. First is neighborhood safety centers in every neighborhood, making sure that the people have a place to go to, to talk to somebody about their concerns. And that person will be able to respond without um, getting bogged down with, with, with radio calls. Um, second is we need to have general police orders that every neighborhood, you need to be doing bike patrols, foot patrols. You need to be talking to the people that are in the neighborhood, not just responding to calls for service, because I have been fortunate that, you know, I didn't do it during COVID, but before COVID, every you know Thursday afternoon with the second district, I would go on either bike patrol or foot patrol. And when you get an opportunity to talk to people, to just listen to their concerns, you get a different perspective because sadly, a lot of people, there might be a noise issue, there might be some quality of life issue, but people sometimes feel like they shouldn't call the police because it's it's not big enough, it's too small, the police are too busy. But we really need to make sure that we are that we are hearing from those people and listening to those people because that's what quality of life is. That's what the real um, you know safety profile is on a on a house by house, street by street basis. So we need to make sure we're doing that. We also need to make sure. All right, let me let me, let me interrupt you there. Let me let me let me stop because we 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 started off with you've got a hundred plus positions that aren't filled and they're in every specialty area, and we have police officers that are getting thirty calls per shift. And we want to have bike patrols and foot patrols and all sorts of other patrols. And I don't, I don't hear where that manpower comes from. That, that if you've got a hundred positions to fill, you're not going to be able to have bike and foot patrols out of the hundred as in addition to fully staffing detectives, in addition to having enough zone car officers. So they're not doing 30 calls a night. So, so how do you tackle that? I mean, the, we all know that public safety is the most expensive portion of the budget. And there have been some suggestions that we need hundreds more officers, but you know, because you've been dealing with that budget, that hundreds more officers come with a staggeringly high cost and the city's not flush with money. Sure. So let me, let me answer your, your, the first question and then I think uh, address what the, 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 the money portion. So let's, start with the very notion that we already have in, we already have a community service unit, which is the unit that I would accompany on the foot patrol, bike patrol. And they are, they are, they are set up to respond to quality of life issues. That is their job within the, the division. And because we already have the mechanism, because we already have this budget, we already have this line item, it's a matter of doing it. It's a matter of making sure that it's a value of every division, not just that I live in the second district. So every district needs to value this. Every district needs to do this. I, I don't know that it's happening in other districts. I don't know that other council members have demanded it, but I, I essentially told the commander, I want to do this. We need to do more of this. And the second district commander responded. So these things, Chris, well, I, I, I absolutely understand the the issue of how do you fund additional police officers? Um, but the for this, this is not so much a matter of money because we already have this budgeted and there should already be staff. It's a matter of priorities. It's a matter of how do we really ask the police to make sure that they are policing, that the, the policing strategy is tailored to the neighborhood that they're serving. All right, but 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 it, but, it, but, but recruitment wait, has wait, wait, also- but, but, to do, but say there's a district that's not doing it. And they so to move officers into doing that, they'll have to pull them from somewhere else it, because the, the city's resources 
are tight. And you're saying in the same breath that the officers that are on the street already are handling more calls than is than is reasonable, that we're, we're stressing them too much with too many calls. It, it, it sounds like a great plan. It's just where do you get the people to do it? I, I, that's what I'm not hearing. OK, so let me try to let me try to clarify that. The community service unit um, is generally off radio. So they are not they are they're designed to be responding to quality of life issues, but not the the, 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 the frequent calls for service. Um, similar to the you know, there's different line items within the Division of Police. We have a parks, pools and playgrounds program as well that puts officers at parks, pools and playgrounds. And these things are all, they're all budgeted for. Uh, right now, I think as Seth made a, a quick mention of, you know, our biggest challenge right now is recruiting, recruiting and retaining. But I, I, I am very confident because I've looked at this in terms of the, 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 budget, the budget implication. And I'm very confident that we can, we can do what we need to do within our budget parameters. So it's not, Chris, what, what I believe I hear saying, like, how can you um, have uh, foot patrol, bike patrol, and real community policing when we can't keep up with the calls for service, or we're really stressing the men and women in the zone car. That is all, those, we can do all of this. Uh, it's a matter of recruitment. It's a matter of, of building the division of police that we need. But, uh, but again, even while we were short-staffed, and we've been short-staffed, you know, for not for two budget years at least, but the community service, we were doing that. We were, we were in the neighborhood with the division of police and it was within budget. So it's not, it's not that we, that everything needs to go to one, one, um, I'll call it a line item, but one, op, one police operation first, and then we go to the next in priority. We can do all of this, but we just have to make sure going back to my original comments that we're giving the police the support that they need, that we're training them, that we're equipping them and we're valuing their service and, that's got to that has to permeate everything we do. Does that mean that we can't do true community policing? No, I do believe we can do true community policing even in our current reality. And I think that's that's something I'm going to start on on day one. But I'm very aware of the budget implications of this, and that's why I think that these are the things we can do that don't cost a lot of money right out of the gate to really change how we are policing in the city of Cleveland. Go ahead, Seth. Well, I'm glad you brought up the uh, budget implications. That's a pretty good segue into the next uh, segment. Uh, you know, the city is going to get a big windfall of federal one-time dollars, and I kind of want a breakdown of what your basic line-by-line plan is for spending that 511 million dollars in stimulus money from the federal government. Sure. So the we got to start with before you before we start thinking about other programs, we have to start with revenue recovery. That was like the real intent of it, and. Our revenue recovery, or our revenue hit that we took, was really in our in our entertainment taxes, and it was the the income taxes that we no longer get from service sector, from hospitalities, from restaurants, from from hotels, and of course the hotel bed tax is one of our entertainment taxes. That admission tax, hotel bed, parking tax. So we need to start with how do we recover um, what we've lost. So that's going to be the first priority. Um, the second priority is going to be making sure that we stop talking about digital divide and we do something about it. We need to provide internet access for every person in the city of Cleveland. We, we've known about this problem for a long time. It was a problem before 
the before COVID hit, it became a crisis when it hit. I think it was a crisis before, but you know, when you send home 18,000 kids knowing that they don't from CMSD, knowing that they do not have a device or a broadband connection, we got to just stop being comfortable with this term digital divide. We need to start calling it what it is. If you have a device and broadband access, you can move ahead. If you do not have that, you most certainly will fall behind. And that's specific to kids, of course, but also think of the workers that we sent home, knowing that Cleveland is one of the least connected cities in the United States of America. I, uh, it's, oh, we launched Old Brooklyn Connected over 10 years ago. We have learned what works. We've learned what doesn't work. It's been a learning experience, but it's been a very robust, you know, quality um, project that we undertook. And I believe that uh, I know the path to provide broadband access to every Clevelander. Actually, Kevin, could you could you talk? You know, I, I I don't know that many people are aware that that you did that. That was one of the things you did in your in your ward. Could you talk a little bit about what you did because that was ahead of the curve? Yes. So, you know, there was a there was a time um, over ten years ago where we there was an extra there was a UDAG repayment, which is just basically it was a repayment of some federal dollars, and I had some money, some discretionary money to do something with that I hadn't anticipated. And I thought, what can I do that would really be, you know, kind of revolutionary? What would I, what can I do that could really bring my, my community forward? And, you know, this kind of came to mind. I started with $200,000, which was woefully inadequate, but I, I essentially cobbled together all of the discretionary funds that I had. The administration came through with some capital funding. We did, um, an RFQ for providers who knew how to provide this this type of service, and what we we launched a community-wide broadband program, and it's a wireless program, and it runs off a series of um, of, of pop sites and and antennas, but we have recently upgraded it, and when I'm at home, this it's my normal broadband uh, service, and. Others in Old Brooklyn have the same opportunity where you, you can do video, you can do Zoom calls. But most importantly, the reason that we launched it is because we wanted to make sure that the, the, the kids in the schools in Ward 13, if they were to Cleveland Public School, that they had the same opportunity that kids at private schools did where they were able to email their teachers. They were able to assign research um, that is that is Internet-based. And it's really been a tremendous success in terms of the fact that we have over 30,000 unique users a month. And more importantly, every now and then it does go out. If there's a, if there's a, a windstorm that, that changes the line of sight or something happens every so often. But we hear from those that use and the people that are using it mostly are, are people of lower income. It's seniors. It's people that hadn't historically had broadband. Is it free? And how do you pay for it now? I mean, I understand you had capital costs to start, but what does it cost to run it every year? Um, cost about about the initial outlay was about one point one million. Um, we put in um, another about four hundred just recently to upgrade, and the average maintenance is just about forty a year. And I use casino funds for that. I use um, to the extent that. The community development block grant dollars can be used. We use that. And just going back to where we were in a, a, when we first started this, when we started this, it was during the, the last stimulus uh, when President Obama was president. 
And there was a Connect Your Communities grant. And we were able to, when we first launched this, it coincided perfectly. We were able to provide training at the rec centers at Estabrook Rec Center, at Old Brooklyn Community Development Corporation, the libraries. And we were able to like have that community part of it, that, that, that community function. So right now, Old Brooklyn Community Development Corporation hosts it. And we're, what we pay now is really the, the cost of hosting and there's ongoing maintenance. Okay. All right. All right. So, so, so keep going on Seth's question. How, how else are you going to spend that money? Okay. So, you know, right now is, I believe, uh, really the, the, the time to strike with broadband because there was just an announcement from the Mandel and Myers Foundation of a very generous contribution towards broadband connectivity. The state, from my understanding, is going to also contribute. So I think right now we are well poised to really move forward on this issue. So broad, so revenue recovery broadband are going to be the top two priorities. Some others that I think are very important. What we saw during COVID is, and because I'm right by City Hall is right next to the Muni lot, and we saw people lined up for the food bank to get food during COVID. And it was just really um, amazing. It was very sad to watch. It was just really kind of a, one of those things that kind of shocks your conscience when you see it. But the food bank stepped up um, tremendously to, to make that happen. And they have some capital needs. And I think making sure that the, the food bank is, is well, um, well funded moving forward is, is another priority. But what I would really like to focus on with remaining funds is putting together a program, putting together a, a jobs program that basically starts with the notion that any Clevelander who wants a job can have a job. And it's gonna be you know similar to the WPA program um, of years ago, but it's also modeled after our, our um, Cleveland age-friendly program, where we, we recruit local people, we find out what the local needs are, and whether it's bringing houses up to code, whether it is improving our parks, but training people to take jobs, training people to have those types of jobs. Because what COVID showed us is that people in, who did COVID hit the worst? It hit people that were working in the service sector, in restaurants, in hospitalities. It hurt women, it hurt people of color disproportionately. We need to really commit to them that there is a path for you. There is a there is a job path for you. And I think with the need that we have right now in our neighborhoods, in our communities, and the the the, the people that we need to train for skilled positions, I think that we can really launch a, a, an amazing jobs program and an amazing neighborhood improvement program um, that, that, that can all come out of these dollars. Um, and that's something that I'm, I'm getting ready to launch right now, um, just the, the general plan. But I think that that's really going to bring us to the next level. If we can, if we can execute on a, on a program like this, I think that would be transformative for the city of Cleveland and just really bring us to another level. Well, the WPA was a pretty huge program. How far do you think, you know, you mentioned up having to make up revenues with this $511 million. How far do you think that stimulus money will actually go to a sort of, uh, you know, WPAA-type program for Cleveland, you know, how far can that stretch until, you know, you, you start getting into uh, budget issues again? Well, you know, raw numbers, you know, you look at um, reco revenue recovery, if you give that like, you know, 200 and some million um, broadband, and, and, you know, if that's another, you know, another 10, 20 million, I think that of the 
511 that needs to be spent by 2024, I think that we can have this, you know, fully funded. I think we look at who in Cleveland needs this opportunity because not all Clevelanders are going to need this. But if you look around the neighborhoods, every neighborhood needs needs improvement. Every neighborhood has blight that needs removal. Um, every every neighborhood has houses that have to come down. I believe that while I don't have the dollar for dollar budget. I'm very confident there's going to be money um, available for something like this. And this is really something to, to really start the progress, getting, getting people, starting the, the, the culture of job readiness and making sure that there's opportunity in Cleveland. I think this is definitely something we can do within the parameters, the, the budget of $511 million. We mentioned fixing up some things around Cleveland. I'm sure infrastructure probably plays a part in that too. And, uh, you know, the one specific part of infrastructure I do want to ask about is Cleveland public power. The, uh, the failings are readily apparent by now. Uh, you know, the West side market just lost power for the second time in a month, I believe. Um, you know, and at the other end, you have privately owned First Energy, you know, bribing state lawmakers and working to undermine and overtake CPP. So what is the best course forward for, you know, Cleveland Public Power to ensure reliable and affordable power through the public utility? Yes. So Cleveland Public Power um, has both capital and operational needs that need to be dealt with immediately. In addition to the West Side Market losing power, the neighborhood I represent, Old Brooklyn, I know the streets, I know the blocks that are going to go out anytime that goes above 90. Um, we just, it's the, the equipment is old. It needs to be upgraded. It needs to be managed responsibly. Um, hopefully through the American recovery or this upcoming infrastructure bill, there's going to be dollars to help with that. Um, it is, it is true operationally. There are some bad power purchase agreements we're in, but I think that really the path forward is if there are, if there are capital dollars available, we need to make sure that we are accessing all those dollars and we need to make sure that customers feel, believe that there's a, they understand their bill. They know exactly what they're paying for. And there's no, it's a, it's a transparent, easy to read bill, but we have to be, start with providing power to people uninterrupted without these, these capital issues. So Kevin, so Kevin, you've been council president now for a good long while. Why haven't you done something about this since you've been council president? It's a powerful position. You know that the problem exists. You've experienced it yourself. If, if you've been aware that this is a problem, why haven't you taken the steps in your current role to fix it? Well, Chris, the problem is that we have taken steps, but this is going to be a this is a great big problem. I mean, fixing Cleveland public power and bring it to the level it needs to be is going to be something that is going to take. It's not going to be a a short term fix. This is going to be something that's going to take. You know, it's going to take years to get back on the right path to make the capital investments that we need to make. And again, we are a Cleveland public power is a small utility competing with. You know, first energy with all the purchasing power and everything that it can do to drive the rates down. And HB6 had the the effect of driving down first energy rates even further when they scrapped all of the renewable requirements. So the the playing the playing field that we're on isn't exactly level, but that's the way it is. We just have to make sure that we are moving forward and we are uh, using, you know, exploring, you know, how do we better use solar? How do we use renewables to take some of the load off of Cleveland public power? Um, and the, to me, we have to also look at expanding another business models. 
I would you know, direct people to just do a quick search of the city of Chattanooga who use their electric utility to provide broadband to all of its citizens. So I do think that there are other business models that Cleveland Public Power has to explore because you know, once we, even once we get these capital issues dealt with, even after the operational needs are met and, and, it's, and it's running well, in order to compete with the, the giants like First Energy, we're going to have to be more creative. We're going to have to be smarter. We're going to have to come up with a different you know, business line to make Cleveland Public Power uh, the, the utility that people want, that people you know, choose Cleveland Public Power in those instances when they do have a choice. That bad power purchasing agreement that you mentioned, is there a way to uh, legislate, negotiate, litigate out of it? Or is that just something we're kind of stuck with going forward? Or is there something you can do as mayor to you know, kind of get out from that contract? So there are, there are things that we can do. Well, let me just take a strike. Let me take a step back. The irresponsible thing for a politician to say is that I'm just going to get out of those contracts or we're just going to walk away because the world just doesn't work that way. <laughs> Not that um, you're speaking about anybody in particular. No, but that you can't just you can't just cancel contracts. OK, um, because the 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 thing people need to realize is that while the Cleveland Public Power is an enterprise fund, it's backed up by our general fund. So but there but we do have. Very, we have a lot of influence within this AMP Ohio, which is we we probably shouldn't have been involved in it to the level we were, but we are. And the question we need to ask is within there, are we getting the best deal out of these power purchase agreements? Is there any renegotiating? What happens if we walk away? What what's the cost of you know of you know opening up that contract? Looking at how do we you know examine these? But it's just. That is something that just can't be dealt with by saying, I'm going to get out of those contracts. I'm going to walk away from those contracts. It's going to be a, and it's going to be a negotiation. It's going to take a lot of legal grit and skill, but we have to end up with a better deal than what we're getting. And the, the, I don't think it'd be a response for any politician or any candidate to say what exactly that path is going to be, but we have to find our way to a better deal out of these out of these contracts. Yeah, you know, the other problem CPP has is that it's been probably 20 years now since the last real infusion of capital reinvestment. I think you almost have to go back to the Mike White years for the last major major spend on upgrading power lines and poles and things. So it's not just that the city has contracts that that it buys power at an exorbitantly high price that makes it hard to compete. It's that its system is falling apart because there hasn't been the money spent on maintenance. It's the complete opposite of what the city's done with the water department, where it's this jewel that's been well tended. Is is it possible to save? I mean, is are you basically by trying to keep it going, throwing good money after bad? Is there really a future in which Cleveland Public Power can be healthy, serviceable, and compete with the big boys? I believe that, that that can happen. And, you know, the, there, there are capital issues are operational, but of course they're, you know, they're, they're entwined. You can't really, you have to separate them, but you really can't because, you know, the, you know, the operation, the capital, it's, it's all Cleveland public power at the end of the day. I do think they can do that using, using division of water as a model. If you look at the amount of, of the investment that went into the capital product of division of water. Um, it really 
that that is the model that we need to do with with um, with claim of public power. Even when things were really bad, the dark days of division of water uh, during the uh, you know 2010, nobody ever questioned the value of the product. If that the product was no the the. the... The customer service fell apart, but I'm talking about the infrastructure. The water plants were completely overhauled 20 years ago at a cost of a half million. There's been, what, another half a billion, another half billion invested in replacing water lines every year. The city goes out, replaces more aging water lines. What, what, what's odd is, is, again, you've been the council president all these years. You can see what, what everything that's done right with water was done wrong with CPP. And I get it. There's no competition for water while there is competition for CPP, but it just raises questions about its viability in the future. I, I do believe that with some, with just dynamic leadership, with somebody that is going to prioritize this and not accepting, you know, the, the, the failures, I think it can change. I do think that there's enough customer base. I think that there's enough, um, there, there's enough customer base. There's enough revenue. There's enough to, that it can be akin to the division of water in terms of the quality of the product. But again, it's going to take as long as it took getting the right leaders in there, getting the right leadership in there and doing the job that needs to be done. And we should, before we even talk about any of this, we need to take a step back and remember that the first step's got to be making sure that the, the men and women who work for Cleveland Public Power are safe because they're, you know, there's, we have to start with safety. And when you have a system that is, in the the very fragile position the Cleveland Public Power is is in, you got to start with the safety of the workers and make sure that there aren't accidents. Make sure that they are, you know, take you know properly cared for and doing the job that we ask them to do. So clearly, we have you know a lot of things in Cleveland that you know we just have to spend money on. That's pretty evident from this conversation. And you know, one one thing that's come up as of late is. Um, you know, the Indians or the Guardians are probably going to be asking for public money for progressive field renovations. You know, First Energy Stadium is also pretty old. I wouldn't be surprised if the Browns, can, you know, come and start asking for some public money here in the near you know, future. Do you support using, you know, public dollars? Like, given what we do have to spend on, you say, as far as infrastructure and housing, do you support using public dollars to help private sport teams, sports teams with their stadiums? So, Seth, it depends on the deal. Um, it depends on uh, what what does the city get in return for the public dollars. Um, if it's if the, the the question were ever posed, you know, should we build a new stadium in the hopes of attracting, I don't know, an NHL team? Like, the answer is always no. But the the different question now is the voters in the '80s decided um, on these stadiums that they wanted to build them. Now the question is, if you look at it, them as a revenue source. In keeping a tenant, be it the the Indian the Indian slash Guardians, Browns, um, Cavs, by keeping a tenant in that building, what does that do for the general fund? Where does the how does that contribute to the city? Um, and the Jacobs uh, Progressive Field has been very good for the city's general fund in the past years, especially 2016 when they went to the World Series. That was a that's been that's been great for the general fund. Uh, the you know the the Q we about we split the admission tax with that. You know the Browns uh, has a, has a different arrangement. So it all depends on that. But I guess the answer to your question, Seth, is if by making some investment 
it returns a greater investment to the city of Cleveland, then it's certainly something that I will look at. Um, certainly something that I'm open to. I'm familiar. I know that the um, that the parties have reached a tentative agreement with the lease extension for the Guardians, the Indians, uh, and I've been briefed on it. I know I, I know the you know general parameters and I know what what's involved. But it's got to go through a process. It's got to go through council. It's got to have the the you know the, the right consideration in terms of whether this is the right deal for the city of Cleveland. Well, there are a lot of studies that show, you know, building stadiums and even renovating stadiums don't produce a whole lot of economic gain necessarily for cities and local governments, and they end up putting the bill. So what's, you know, I, I hate to pin you down on any specific number, but broadly speaking, what's kind of the number that uh, you think you'd be comfortable with? So I don't, I don't have a number at this point, and I don't want, I'm not in any way trying to not answer the direct question, but I think that, you know, you are correct. If, so, if, if somebody ever thought we should go after the Olympics or, you know, build new, that just doesn't work out. But I'm looking at this, is there a real threat that, you know, the Indians could find another city? I believe that there is. Um, what would the cost be if we had an empty stadium right there? Because the, the, the thing that we have to be very cognizant of in the city of Cleveland is that, um, that is our responsibility. The gateway is the owner, but in the event that the Indians guardians were to leave, um, the backstop is the city of Cleveland. We are the ones that would need to take on hundred percent of the maintenance, hundred um, percent of all the upkeep and God forbid, if it resulted in demo or something else that would all be on our, on our, the taxpayer's dime. So we need to look at does, would a lease extension produce the revenue to make it worth the, the investment and the, the, the ball club actually did a $40 million investment uh, just a couple of years ago, all on their own, all on their dime. They didn't come to the city for any, um, for any um, capital okay. dollars for that. Let, let me, let me so, I, so, so look, we, we get it, right? There is economic development with, okay. All right. Let, let me, let me interrupt you. I, so, so look, we, we get it, right? There is economic development with, a ball team in town. There is the ownership of the stadium. This is the model for financing that's across the country. If you don't do it, Nashville will, or somebody else will. So, so we get that argument, but, but you know, there'll be detractors because you went through this four years ago with the, the arena where, where push came to shove pretty much in your office in the end. And this time you could very easily see one of the opponents holding up a picture of kids on the east side of Cleveland saying, wait a minute, wait a minute, the city is going to spend, I mean, if this whole deal is a hundred million, say that the city's putting in 60 or something, the city's going to spend $60 million to help out a baseball stadium. Whereas if they spent that $60 million to eradicate lead paint in Cleveland houses, you would ensure the health and prosperity of countless future generations. Where's our sense of priorities? How do you deal with something like that? The, the continuous that lead paint is one of the biggest scourges Cleveland's ever faced. It is harming the brains of countless children year after year after year. How do you justify spending money on a baseball stadium when your children are suffering like that? As is infant mortality, as is crime, as is in disinvestment, those, those, those problems all exist. But the, the, the thing we need to just keep in mind that if, if this is some function of the admission tax, and, you know, if we were to, if it's a, if it's a matter of a portion of the, of the admission tax, if there is no team, then there's no admission tax, then there's even less money 
in the general fund for those for those causes that I just mentioned. Um, it's got to be seen as whether or not it is a net positive for the general fund for the city of Cleveland. And if it is, that's where the money comes from to spend on lead poisoning, on infant mortality, on you know crime prevention, on police cameras. It has to be seen as a revenue generator, not something where we are just giving money away for the sake of giving money away. That'll never happen. I mean, I'll never, you know, just have a a giveaway that is a net loss for the city of Cleveland. It just won't happen. Well, that actually again goes into my next question very well. There, there's all this talk about downtown development and you know bringing business to the okay. area, but there are a lot of neighborhoods that really continue to struggle with attracting new businesses and residents. And I want to know what you will you know, do to ensure equitable development opportunities, you know, for neighborhoods across the city? Sure. So let me start by saying that when I'm mayor, every neighborhood's going to count. Where you live is not going to determine, your zip code will not determine your health outcomes or your life expectancy. Um, every neighborhood will see investment. I'm going to continue with with initiatives like the Middle Neighborhoods um, Fund, where you set up a loan loss reserve fund, whether to give private sector, the private sector, the confidence that they can invest in, in these neighborhoods and it'll be a safe investment for them. We're going to, we need to. Oh, 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 you're going way off field. Look, downtown is imperiled by the pandemic now, depending on how many people come back. And this is a city across the nation kind of thing. Every city's looking at what the future is. I mean, too many cities were single downtowns were based on single things, single sources of income, all the workers. This is a chance to vary it. So with the challenges ahead, this is brand new for the next mayor. This is no previous mayors really had to deal with it. What What's your thought on downtown? Okay, my thought on downtown is this. We as a community need a healthy, thriving downtown neighborhood. We need it to be the central business district, not just for Cleveland, not just for the county, for the region. It is the economic engine of the region. And while there is need in, in certain neighborhoods, we need to also understand, I tell my constituents this, all the time because they believe, you know, everybody believes they're not getting enough. Money that's generated downtown plows the snow in old Brooklyn and it picks up the trash in old Brooklyn because there is no, there's only, there are only two wards where they enough income, enough revenue is generated to pay for the service that take place in that ward. Other than that, it's a citywide effort. So we need a strong, healthy, thriving downtown, but I'm going to support every neighborhood through the other tools that I'd be happy to talk to you about. But, but okay, so just say that there is some percentage, whether it's big or little, of downtown workers that don't come back. So that you're already law offices all over town are already talking to their brokers about reducing their footage. I mean, it's already happening. The square footage of offices is shrinking because companies can save money on rent. So that's going to go away, at least in some portion. What would your plan be then to deal with that? Do you turn downtown into more of a livable neighborhood? Do you start sectioning off streets for bike paths and hiking trails and playgrounds? What what do you see of downtown if the the number the the square footage for business is reduced? So, yes to all of the above that you mentioned, but my belief is this: um, we don't quite know what the new normal is going to be. Is it going to be, is there going to be somewhat less um, 
you know, uh, reporting downtown to work every day? Yes, at least in the short term. But I do believe that downtown will rebound. I do believe it will thrive. But I think in order to get there, we need to make sure that we're supporting those businesses and those things that, that add the vitality. People aren't going to come downtown because they love their cubicle. They're going to come downtown because of the restaurants, because of the experience, the street level vitality. And we need to make sure that we are supporting the restaurants that were hurt during COVID, supporting street level retail, all of those things that make downtown, the downtown Cleveland experience great. Now, with less, if there are less um, actual, you know, commercial tenants downtown, there can be more residential, more residential would obviously lead to more bike lanes, more pedestrian friendly um, amenities. And we should be doing that anyhow. We should really be making sure that, you know, we have more bike lanes. We have, there's no reason Superior Avenue needs to be the width that it is. Um, there's, there's plenty of opportunity and we should really treat our streets you know, as, you know, more, more for pedestrian access than just for moving cars. So okay. I think, you know, we have to respond to this in a responsible way that really, you know, gets the most out and remake downtown in what the new downtown is going to be. Okay. We have uh, one, one more very important question to ask before we wrap it up. Go ahead, Seth. Yeah, I think we uh, we wanted to kind of get an idea of, you know, how you were going to govern or how you're going to build your team. And we want to know if elected, who would you pick for your chief of staff or, you know, who in the community kind of embodies the qualities that you would like to see in a chief? Of yeah, staff? We know that you may not want to articulate. Yes, this person's my chief of staff, but we're looking for you to point to people who have the qualities that you would look for. So there are, there's a lot of strong leaders in this town. You're, you're correct. I, I have not picked out any curtains yet. Um, I have not picked a, a chief of staff yet, but I look at, you know, some of the, there are people with talent within city hall um, and there's, there's plenty outside. I mean, I'd be, I can just, you know, I don't want to name anybody's names on, on the air, but we have, um, I'm looking for some strong people. I'm looking for some, uh, a diverse team. My team is going to conclude, um, you know, hopefully as many women as men, uh, and it's going to it's going to reflect Cleveland. And uh, I really, you know, I've been in this business long enough where I know who's good, and I know who has leadership potential, and I know where I need to go outside City Hall. And that's going to be there's going to be a lot of that happening. But but what we're trying to get at, and and it's not somebody that would be a candidate for it, but who who are the people in your past? that you would seek to emulate in terms of who your chief of staff would be. We've had a whole variety of chiefs of staff at City Hall, and we're trying to get an idea from the candidates what they value in that role because it's such a critical role. Well, I'll tell you the, the type of person I value um, uh, and would put in this position is, is sadly no longer with us, but my um, you may recall my my role, my professional role model was uh, Helen Jones of Recovery Resources. Um, she okay. kind of, you know, hired me and brought me along and taught me how to manage people and taught me how to move on and taught me the values of keeping your, you know, your personal opinion separate from what's professional and how you need to really focus on achieving for your client or your customer. That's the type of person I'm looking for. Okay. And you said that you think there are a lot of strong people in City Hall. You know, one of the big themes of this campaign for many of the candidates 
um, is that City Hall is broken, that it's too hard to figure out how to get a permit, that other cities have figured out how to make one-stop shopping for, for services. So, so one of the thoughts that I've heard from others is there really isn't a bench at City Hall that a lot of Frank Jackson's cabinet members are reaching the end of their career, and there really hasn't been the grooming of the next generation for this. But but you seem to be saying you think there are plenty of people at City Hall that could. If that were true, then wouldn't you think City Hall be operating better? Wait, well, let me just let me just take a step back. Um, no, um, I didn't say there are plenty of people that can step right up. There's going to be wholesale change. There is going to be a a leadership team. There's going to be a cabinet that is going to be the the best and the brightest. It's going to be we are going to be aggressive. We are going to be ready to go on day one. And no, I mean, if, if, if you if you misheard me there, that there are some people in the 7,500 employees that the city of Cleveland has that have leadership potential. That is true. Um, is it going to be more of the same? Absolutely not. Is it going to be the same chiefs? No. Is it going to be the same directors? No. Is it going to be the same, um, you know, management structure? Absolutely not. Um, there are that change is going to happen on day one. So if you if, uh, if if that came across that way, please understand that is not what I said. That's not what I intended to to communicate. Okay. Well, look, I want to say thank you, Kevin, for being the first of these interviews. It's been enjoyable talking to you. Thank you, Seth, for, for operating this. Thanks to everybody who listens to this podcast. We'll have a whole bunch of special episodes with the candidates all publishing around the same time. Thank you very much. I appreciate the time. I'm always happy to come back. Bye-bye.